Let's rock, girl. We are recording. I'm going to air that, too, because that sounded awesome. Okay, so I always start out with the same question. Where did you go to college, and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I went to Kane College, which is now Kane University, and I always thought I would be a lawyer since sixth grade. I remember filling out the paperwork that I was going to be a lawyer, but my father was was a detective, and so that's where I think I became interested in the law. How do you mean? So just conversations with him, just watching what he did um, every day, talking about his day, um, understanding, you know, his aspect, you know, his side of the story, what he was doing, really got me fascinated in it. And then I watched the movie The Burning Bed with Farrah Fawcett. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> you know what? I do. Yeah. I so do. Um, I had no idea um, that there were women and men out there being abused the way Farrah Fawcett was abused in the burning bed. And I thought for sure I would be a prosecutor. That was really the niche that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a a prosecutor prosecuting um, batterers and people that committed acts of domestic violence. So that was really my trajectory. I wanted to be a prosecutor in law school. I interned at the Passaic County Prosecutor's Office. During law school, I interned at the U.S. Attorney's Office. But then I landed in a clerkship that's Wait, you're home. going way too fast. Oh, sorry. Go back up. <laughs> That's it. We're done. Oh, sorry. Thank you for listening. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I just thought it would be more in the in the realm of being a prosecutor. So sixth grade, and you it never wavered after that? Of wanting to be a lawyer? Mm-hmm. No. Wow. No, and eventually I thought I would be a judge. But Why didn't you want to be a cop? I don't, you know, I, I like the courtroom aspect of it, all of the TV shows, you know, I was always drawn to a lawyer, and I think I um, am too verbose, too um, mouthy too <laughs> to, be, to be a cop, you yeah. know, I was just always a little talkative and the social butterfly and so did had strong you, opinions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, we like that. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> you, did you go straight to law school after college? I didn't. I went, um, so I went to Kane, and I could not get into law school. I had good, what? I couldn't. I had why? great, I had great grades, but I think I only got the points on the LSAT that you get for when you put your name on it. I don't <laughs> think I. Okay, not a sco- good test Yeah, I didn't, I did not score well, so I couldn't get into any law schools, so. Uh, eventually, I got into Thomas Cooley Law School out in Michigan, so I moved out to Michigan for a year. I went there, and then I transferred back to Seton Hall. So you got good grades there. I got very good grades there. I actually walked away from almost a full scholarship. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of proof that those standardized tests don't really work. Uh, for me, they didn't work. I mean, I think I could have figured out the questions, just not in the time that they gave me. Like, I'd have to draw out the table, like Christina's sitting across from Gerald and John's sitting on the right and Mark's sitting on the left. Where's Mary? Remember yes, those questions? I love those. I hated those, but I could do it, just not in the time you frame know, that they wanted. Like, I actually practice LSAT. Did you do that? I did. I took all the classes. I did all of those horrific, stressful things, but I could never get my grades up to the point where... Well, it doesn't look like it's held you back any, so... Well, thanks. <laughs> so, Part of the I, journey. I like that you didn't give up. I like that you didn't say, well, I guess I'm not going to law school. I better find something else to do. No, so I was a legal secretary for a year. I worked for Congressman Rodino's law firm, so that I learned a lot there. Um, 
But that really solidified my desire to go to law school, being a legal secretary. I said, if I can, if I can master this and do this, and and I got to see what the lawyers were doing in the office, and I was like, yeah, I could do that. So then you get, go to law school. Mm-hmm. Did you do some clinics? Like, was it still the domestic violence area that you were interested so, in? So yeah, I I got involved in the family law clinic, um, and one of my professors there was was fabulous, and she got me. Uh, my clerkship in Essex County with Judge Glickman, and then it was just kind of off to the races from there that it was going to be family law. So what did you do after your clerkship? So I went right to Norris McLaughlin, where I was there for 21 years until I I came here. I know that you had an interesting experience there from what I've heard from other people, and you tell me if this is wrong. Hmm? You started there... And then basically the whole family law department just up and left. And you were like, okay, I guess I'm the family law department. And what I liked about that story is that some people would have been really scared and would have been like, screw this, I'm out of here, I'm going to go somewhere else. But you really saw that as an opportunity. I did. No, I was scared. I remember being afraid. I remember coming home that that night. It was Donya Grunick. It was really one attorney, um, left. She moved to Chicago and left me the department. And I remember being upset and afraid. I mean, I was a brand new lawyer. Was it like your first year at all? I think it had to be my first or second year. So how old were you at the time? Probably 27, 28. Yeah, which seems young now. Yeah. At the time it did. Yeah, I mean, right, you know, so, but I did. That's exactly what I did. I just seized the opportunity. I saw it as an opportunity and and took it and ran so, with it. And so then, what did you do? I mean, how did you learn? Because I was saying on another show that I, when I got out of my clerkship, I really wanted my Mr. Miyagi, who was going to teach me how to wax on, wax off. Right, yeah. But you, it doesn't sound like you had that. I didn't, you know, and that's what I say to the associates, you know, that I've been surrounded by since that time is how lucky they are um, because they've been able to work with other lawyers and learn. You know, what do they like about this lawyer? What do they like about that lawyer? And kind of take it all in. I didn't have that opportunity, so I really learned um, from my colleagues. I learned by trial and error. Um, and you, you did know. have other lawyers in other practice areas around you? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a big firm. So, yeah, I had other practice area lawyers that, you know, I could draw from, but it was mostly from my other colleagues and having cases and and learn and doing a lot of reading yeah. a lot of writing I just um, remember the thing that scared me the most was going to court and having a trial and not really understanding you know how I actually start it and move evidence around and like the mechanics of, of it. it that part scared me how did you learn that did you make a lot of mistakes y- yeah I mean I feel like we make mistakes every day Right. I mean, sometimes I think we should be advocating to change how we bill. We should bill by decision that we make instead of by hour because we're making so many decisions, important decisions a day. Why don't so, the clients want to pay more? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> They're already complaining That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you learn, you learn by trial and error. You learn by really good judges trying to shepherd you along the way. I also went to a trial school very early on. I went out to Texas and took a trial. I, uh, I was trained really on how to try cases. Oh, they videotaped awesome. me, and I was is pregnant with still, Abigail. And is that still around? It is still around. I don't think it's in Texas. I think they they moved locations. But, yeah, it's a trial school, full-blown, soup to nuts, that's, um, that's openings, closings. Yeah. I mean, I found 
that's what gave me the confidence to be able to walk into the courtroom and not worry about it. I think you have to just do it. You do. Because I've had associates that work for us and, you know, some I think are able to hit the ground running a little easier than others. And some, I think it's just the fear really that holds them back. I think so. And I think, look, with the statistics being in family law that such a high percentage cases settle, not a lot of cases are tried. There's really not many um, family lawyers out there that are awesome trial lawyers that it's are trying true. cases every week because they're just not. It's true. Right? So and it's I've, always a learning curve. I've always thought that that's what really makes us lawyers, being able to go to court. Maybe I watch too much television, but being able to just go to court with your suit mm-hmm. on and, you know, do a trial. Right. Because you must know that there's a lot of attorneys that when you start winding down on a case and it gets close to a trial date, there are attorneys that they don't want to do the trial. Right. They will compromise much more the closer you get to trial because they don't want to do it. Either because they, they don't know how or, let's face it, it's work. Yeah. I, or I, but I also I think it can be partially that. I also think it can um, also be... Viewing a trial as a total failure, um, right? How many times have we walked out of court and we've won something that we shouldn't, yeah. or we've lost something that we shouldn't, which is even more painful, right? And judges, they just aren't getting it right all the time. And that's not a knock on judges. It's just, it's hard, right? Yeah. You have limited time. They have limited time. You're trying to present your case the best that you can. And I think experience has taught us that that is not the right place to be particularly in family law. It's not. Well, I've always thought a divorce isn't really a legal problem. It's a family in crisis. Right. That's what I've always thought. Particularly with kids, right? So do we really want a stranger in a black robe analyzing statutory factors based on, you know, such a sterile environment of direct and cross-examination? Are they really getting the full picture of what this family's about? No. But you and I are. You know, in a conference room, day after day, eight hours, working hard. I mean, it's much harder to settle a case than to try a case, right? I agree. I yeah. think it is. You know, it's a tough, Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you really have to work harder. Sometimes it's easier to say, you know what, I'm going to take my toys out of the sandbox. I'm just going to let the judge call it. Yeah. And how many times yeah. do you regret that decision? And it's, it's Well, tough. I think a lot of it, too, is managing client expectations. Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, I think... Speaking of watching too much television, I think sometimes our clients watch too much television and they think it happens the way they see it on law and order. Or Judge Judy. You know, that the judge is sitting on the bench waiting for them to walk in, right? Yes. I mean, I I can count maybe on one finger in 22 years how many times a judge has waited for me in the courtroom, right? Yeah. They're not waiting. No. You're surrounded by a lot of your colleagues, a lot of other clients, and you're there eight hours and maybe you get an hour before the judge. Yeah. And the client's paying for you to sit there. Right. Well, let me back up a little bit. Sure. So you ended up going right into private practice, but what happened to your aspirations to be a prosecutor? So, um, you know, I fell in love with the family law clinic. Um, I got to argue a motion as a lawyer, as a law student, sorry, uh, in the clinic and just kind of went from there. And then I went to law firm after law school and never fulfilled the prosecutor dream and I likely will never fill the judge dream either. But why not? Yeah, you know, it's I like what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so isolating. It really is. I mean, think of these judges, they're not allowed to talk to lawyers anymore, hang out with lawyers. It's 
Yeah, I would not love for to, me. <laughs> I'd love to have some judges on my podcast, but I don't think they can do that. They probably can't. The retired ones. Yeah. So, okay, so the prosecutor thing didn't happen, no. but in some way you were still doing that kind of work. Yeah, you I was were doing domestic violence cases, right? Exactly right. I um, was advocating for generally the victims, but there were times that I, oftentimes, that I represented the accused as well, right? So I think one of the, the hardest parts of um, our profession is the abuse of the Prevention of Domestic Violence Act, right? We know, yes. we know domestic violence to be a term of art, right? And yes. a very significant um, act of violence. And now you have people really just trivializing the true plight of victims. So that's been frustrating to see as well. Yeah, I think when we go to court, a lot of the restraining orders we see aren't, they shouldn't really be restraining orders. No, they're really to just gain an advantage in a, in a matrimonial case, but. You know what I've wondered though, why do the judges grant them? Because you can just, really, you can just show up and get a TRO. Yeah, well, TROs are very easy to get, right? Yeah. But I think, I think they grant them because they're rightfully concerned about getting it wrong and being on the front page of the newspaper that, you know, if something really goes south, that they yeah. didn't. And it does, you know, and things go south and people do crazy things. But you've been involved in changing our laws, I've tried. Yeah, I'm very you, passionate about that. How did you get initially get involved in that? So that came through, um, through the New Jersey State Bar Association when I was chair of the family law section, or even earlier than that. Um, as a younger lawyer, I got involved on the family law executive committee and eventually was chair of the legislative committee and then worked my way up to being in the chairs and then the officer and then the chair and now working my way through the chairs at the state bar level. So through that service, really developed a passion for legislation, working with members of the legislature, because um, that's really a significant way to impact change. Yeah. So a lot of our colleagues, we want to complain about problems in the law. And so um, I don't want to just complain about it. I want to be able to find ways to fix it. And if we can't fix it judicially, which we can sometimes, but sometimes the legislature needs to act as well. And so if we have a good idea, we can try to move that through the legislature. So that's been exciting. Alimony, you know, was a, a crazy time. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Did you recognize that there was a need to make some changes to the alimony laws? Well, um, we did, we absolutely did, but um, there was a movement afoot happening, you know, in, in Massachusetts and Florida and Jersey and all the talk were, was about guidelines. We need guidelines, guidelines, guidelines. And so um, that was really what was happening in Trenton, was a movement to try to implement alimony guidelines. Do you think we need guidelines? No. Why not? No. And we actually, you know, we fought hard to not have guidelines, right? So I've been doing this 22 years. You've been doing it a long time, too. Have you ever had the same case twice? No. Never, right? So how can you have a guideline? But right. aren't people really doing that uh, unofficially anyway? Because we had the one-third rule, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people were doing, probably judges too. Isn't that kind of like a guideline? Well, they're not supposed to be doing that. They're not supposed to. They're not supposed to, to be but doing that. But they do. But, I mean, maybe if they're doing it to kind of put them in a ballpark of what something strikes them as fair. Um, but that's really not how you're supposed to be figuring out alimony, right? So. You have statutory factors that are supposed to matter 
uh, looking at what happened during that marriage, what did that partnership look like, um, what her needs, ability to pay. So we fought hard about against alimony guidelines. Well, I have to ask the question, mm -hmm. if, if alimony guidelines aren't appropriate, then why are, why are child support guidelines appropriate? Yeah, are they? That, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a very good question. Um, you know, the current guidelines are very low. Um, we think, you know, um, that's why they're rebuttable presumptions and people are supposed to be advocating for ways to deviate from those guidelines. But when you look at the weekly support that these guidelines are producing, they're low. Um, but it gets yeah. expensive for clients, right, to, to fight for that. But Yeah, I was just going to say that I think the problem is that most people don't just have tens of thousands of dollars to litigate. Right. And that's where the real advocacy comes in, is evaluating the alimony factors and evaluating the child support factors to see if that family really is getting enough. But usually there's not enough money for mm -hmm. litigation fees. And also, if the family didn't have enough money to even really live well as an intact family, how are they gonna do that now as two families? That goes back to your manage expectation conversation, right? And that's why the initial consultation, I think, is the most important time spent with the client, is to talk them through what the process actually looks like, that it's not law and order, it's not Judge Judy, um, that they're best served by trying to reach an agreement, and what that agreement may look like, and how difficult it is for us to figure out when they were struggling to maintain one household, how on earth are we going to do this when we're dividing it amongst two? Yeah. But make them part of that problem and part of the solution so that we're working together to figure it out. Well, I think that's usually where the guidelines come in, though, is it's like a faster way to come up with a number or at least, as you said, a ballpark because people are paying for our advocacy when we have to, you know, analyze factors. So let's just do it the easy way, use guidelines or, you know, the one third rule mm -hmm. and then work from there. It's difficult to do what we know we should do and that what would serve the clients the best, but at the same time, be mindful that they don't have an endless supply of money to litigate. Right? I don't know what the answer is. I don't think there really is one. There's not, but you know, I think so long as lawyers are looking at every case, you know, as a unique set of facts and circumstances and what's going to best serve that family instead of just saying you get a third, you get a third, you you get a third. And now the law's changed so that alimony is not taxable or tax deductible. So I don't even know what the new alleged rule of thumb is, but um, I've been seeing people just assume 25% mm -hmm. of the difference in income as a starting point, okay. which I don't know if it actually works if you actually look at the numbers and look at everyone's budget. I don't know if it works. But you yeah. still have the same problem. There's not enough money to go around. Right. So I don't know that that's fixable. So what do you, do you identify now any issues in the law that are sort of at the forefront trending trending I mean I know alimony is there's still a movement there you've got the people that just think it should be abolished yeah I don't think that's ever gonna happen I hope it doesn't happen I mean New Jersey's always been the leader in 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 advocating for what's just and fair and so I I hope that never happens I mean I think we have to recognize um, some people 
sacrifice a great deal when they leave the workforce to either raise children or put their career on hold. So, I mean, it's not supposed to be a punishment. It's supposed to be a recognition for what that what that marriage looked like and what that partnership looked like. Um, you know, one part of the law that we're trying to focus on is this child support statute, um, which is really a probation statute that child support automatically ends um, at a date certain. Um, and although the law talks about that that's not an emancipation bill, and it is not an emancipation bill, uh, it is being misconstrued and misapplied. Um, so the law just changed and made it um, broad where the statute does not apply to children who have special needs. Um, but there's a whole class of kids that are being harmed by this by this bill, um, we think, at the state bar. And that is kids that are going to college. Yes. Right? Yeah. So in New Jersey, you have a high 70, low 80 percent uh, percentage chance of your child going to college. So why are we automatically terminating child support um, and making it difficult? We've now shifted the burden to the recipient of child support to say, hey, I still need it. Where before the change in the law, it was the payor's obligation to say, hey, you don't need child support. So well, there's some states, and I know that there's people that advocate this position here in New Jersey, that why should parents be paying child support beyond high school? Yeah, well, I think Pennsylvania, right? And yeah. as soon as you turn 18, I think you're you're off the off the payroll. But what do you think of that? I, you know, I think uh, when you have a child, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure what magic happens at 18. You know, uh, you know, maybe you're emancipated at 18, maybe you're not. I mean, we're, we're hearing so much now of, people, of kids graduating college and coming home. You know, I think there's real genius to um, our emancipation language about talking about self-sufficiency and moving beyond the sphere of influence. And what I never understand is why is a parent rallying so hard to not support their child? You know, I, I mean, alimony is a whole different animal, right? Yeah. That's that's your former spouse, and sometimes there's a lot of emotion there. But this is your child, right? That's saying, "Hey, you know, I want to go to college. I want to, um, I want to have pizza and maybe a beer every now and then when I'm at college, or I graduated college and I I'm not finding a job, and you want to just say, "Hey, well, I don't want to pr provide support anymore." Well, who's supposed to provide support? Yeah. So it's a challenge. You know, it's fact sensitive there too because yeah, kids, I. I totally appreciate that. I don't know. I don't even know how I feel about it, but I know that when I was 18, my family didn't have money. They couldn't really support me. I turned 18. I was living with my grandparents and they were like, okay, well, you're 18. You graduated from high school. You're on your own, kid. Start paying us rents. And, and I don't think everyone's experience should just be what my experience was, but I never had an expectation that my parents were going to support me, you know, well into college or beyond that. Right. So it, when I hear about people who, you know, their parents are still paying for a lot of things, you know, well into their 20s or 30s, I mean, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> but yeah. So I think for me, that's the difficulty I have with it is at some point, aren't you an adult? Yeah. For sure. But I think, again, that's case by case. And yes. it's going to be, you know, what the parents can afford, what the child's needs are, and why. 
you know, is it because they're sitting in the basement playing Fortnite yes. all day? Yes. You know, I mean, so, you know, the answer may change as to what a parent's willing to do or not do. Yeah, and, and I think also it's imp- the values of the parents are important, too, because there could be parents who say, look, you know, we have the money to support you, but we don't want to support you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're 25. Go get a job. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. You you graduated from college. We helped you. It's time for you to figure it out. Yeah. I don't know how much we really, how much time we spend on that issue when we're doing that analysis. Because I've been there in the course of my practice. Right. But I do try not to impose my own values and my own experience on that. Well, you know, some cases it's clear, right? When you have children that have special needs and may never be emancipated, yeah. right? Those are the clearer examples. Um, it's it's the more gray ones that you know are concerning, and you just hope that they're striking a balance of fairness. And and most parents are, right? They're rooting for their kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I want to talk a little bit about business. So okay. going back again to Norris when you were there, how did you drum a business when you were 27 and had only been practicing law a year? What did you do? Got involved, became active, became very active in the state bar first uh, and then the county bar. Um, I wrote a lot of articles. I tried to lecture um, at seminars tried to uh, build relationships amongst my peers and fellow colleagues. And, you know, just, I I really tried to be a good adversary, be a good colleague, um, somebody that you'd want to have on the other side of a, of a case, somebody that you could trust um, and work well together. You know, be an advocate when I needed to be. Um, but I really never bought into that gladiator type mentality, you know, take no prisoners, you know, yeah. let's go to war. Um, that was never my style. Now, if, I think if I needed to do that or if I needed to try an issue or try the case, I was never afraid to do that. Um, but that was never my first approach. My first approach was we have a family in crisis, you know, and the beauty of what we do is we represent both sides, right? So. We're not just a plaintiff's lawyer or just yeah. a defense lawyer. We're representing moms in the morning and dads in the afternoon. So there has to be a lot of credibility and authenticity in our positions. And so just trying to be consistent. But you know, my mom taught me at a very early age to just get involved. And so I, that's all I know. So that's well, you're doing that's it. How, you're everywhere. Um, you know, I love it. I love what I do. I mean, this is a hard job. It says, you know, yeah. you know, some days are worse than than others. Um, but every every day is a new day, and just try to do the best I can. I've also surrounded myself with really good people, hardworking people, bright people, um, people that want to work hard, play hard, and so. And I've always had that philosophy too. You're only as strong as your weakest link. So I try to not have many weak links. I think that's true. Yeah. I think you become whoever you surround yourself with. Totally agree. Yeah. So there came a time when you left Norris. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? So what, the decision to <laughs> yes. leave or the decision to leave? Because you were there. You were there for a minute. <laughs> I, a couple yeah, minutes. I grew up there. You know, I grew up there. I was an associate there. Um, became a partner, an equity partner, eventually was, you know, I think we had six people on management, so I was on management committee there, compensation committee, 
I was practice leader there. I mean, so. Did you think you were a lifer there? I did. You know, there were many years there that, um, you know, you you, you have these fleeting moments of, um, you know, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go out on my own. Um, And I remember thinking about it years ago, um, and I got down to knowing that I needed to fund the postage machine. And I was like, yeah, I can't worry about the postage machine. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, you know what? Like, like at Norris, I have a mail room. Like, I don't know about them. So, you know, those kinds of things intimidated me. Um, but I always had the dream of, of having my own place. I mean, I really? love, I did. Um, I love being so close to home. But, you know, once I got on management committee and I saw how the sausage was made, um, and they were making changes along the way as to, um, who are their managing partners? And I felt overlooked sometimes there. And was, were there other women? There was. Um, there, um, Allison Gaylor, who um, has since left, and she's a hotshot at Cone Resnick now, an accounting firm. She's terrific. But they were receptive to women, um, okay. but probably not so much when it, I thought it was I should have been considered, and and I wasn't, and for whatever reason that was. So that was a tough tough pill to swallow but that's really what um drove the point home um you know being run trying or helping run that firm i said you know i can i can do this on a much smaller scale and with my team and be responsible for for my team so what was the most surprising thing about having your own practice you know the beauty and the freedom of having an idea and just implementing that idea. You know, nothing is decided by committee. Um, it's all you. It's all me. And that's sometimes that's not great, <laughs> you know. Not saying I get it right all the time. I mean, I try hard. Um, but that's been the most liberating thing is, hey, I'd like to try this today. And we try it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, no. Well, that's a good attitude to have because a lot of times, especially when you're in business, you you can't be afraid to fail at something. Oprah says failure is just pointing you in a different direction. Yeah. I love Oprah. Yes. Yeah. How can't you love Oprah? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, and I think that's so true uh, because I, I see a lot of people get sort of paralyzed with decision making because they're so afraid they're making the wrong decision. But at some point, you just have to make a damn decision, yeah. right? Well, change is hard, yeah. right? Change is is hard and stressful um and just very uneasy right you and um when you when you think about when i think about making that decision and i'm here now a year I and know. congratulations thank you. i know it's it's flown by it's been a fabulous year i love coming to work every day i mean i love my space but it's you know i i think back there's times i'm just here by myself and i look around and i say you know, it's a culmination of millions of decisions. Yeah, right? small decisions, and yeah. some of them even things you probably did years ago yeah. that are coming to fruition now. And you think about, you know, in life in general, if I would have, if I didn't go to Norris and I went to a different firm, or if I chose some different path, where would I be? But where I am where I am, and it's all for a reason, and just trying to continue the journey in a, in a, in a fun way, in a positive way but so what's next for you what's a priority for you right now so priority is um continuing to manage and grow um this firm and make sure everybody's happy and content 
and I think they are, so that's terrific. And bar leadership. I'll be president of the state bar uh, in three years, so trying to mentally prepare that's for awesome. that. I mean, that, that position has really evolved um, to um, you know, quite, quite uh, a time commitment. Um, you know, Evelyn Padin right now and the presidents before her you know, they are out and about statewide, uh, just got back from Texas, they're going to Chicago. You know, they are really out there trying to be the face of New Jersey lawyers and trying to effectuate an impact change for us for the better. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, what really is the role of the president? I mean, what are you really doing as the president so for people you, who don't know, which would be me? Yeah, so, <laughs> you know... Um, Getting out to every county, so you're trying to get to all 21 counties, attend their events. You're trying to attend swearing in of judges, um, trying to work with the Supreme Court to implement rule changes, um, whether it be court rules, ethics rules, um, trying to get boots on the ground in Trenton, trying to meet with members of the legislature to move a piece of legislation um, or to kill a piece of legislation. Um, getting out and meeting members, right? We are only as good as our membership uh, in trying to serve those needs. So every day is, is different. I mean, they, the leadership um, just came back from an ABA conference um, in Texas. And, you know, our, our leadership, our main goal was the ABA they go off the reservation a little bit sometimes and they decided they wanted to give an award to a robot called do not pay and it's an app where you just click on this app and it will help you sue just about anybody and in new jersey we don't think that's a good idea that no. we should be turning over the practice of law to a robot but there's some fractions of the um ABA that think that that's a good idea. So they draft some resolutions um, that they want the body as a whole, all the you know nationwide to pass. So New Jersey, along with many coalition partners, New York, Alaska, and many others, I believe, you know, fought hard to say, you know, we, we, we better tread lightly here. We don't want Walmart owning law firms. We yeah. really we don't want robots giving there's, legal advice. There's been a lot of buzz about that. I yeah. know that there's, I think there are other states that allow non-attorneys to own law firms, or at least there there's a movement I think there's a movement. That. New Jersey's fighting hard for that not to happen here. I mean, there, Washington State has a triple LT, limited legal licensed technician, where essentially you don't need to go to law school, but divorce clients can come to you victims of domestic violence can come to you and this triple lt can give you legal advice so do you think that these changes this development is the result of our society just wanting something different i think it comes from a good place there are unmet legal needs i mean there are there are um people out there that cannot afford an attorney so we have to look holistically and creatively how to solve that, but we don't think turning that over to a robot is the right is the right answer. 
for example. Uh, the State Bar Association has developed a program called Legal Edge that's rolling out to um, county bars. And it's a software program where you can match, you know, a, um, an applicant can fill out what it exactly it is that they're looking for, what their income situation, their asset situ situation is, and match you with a lawyer who's willing to take on that case at maybe at a redu reduced rate or something. So it comes from a good place of, we have an issue of unmet legal needs, but how do we solve that? Yeah, and as we know, divorce is very expensive. Yeah, but divorce, right? So there's two people that control how long yes, a divorce takes absolutely. and how much it costs. And absolutely. that's generally not the lawyers, right? Yes. We tell our clients, we can get you divorced within four to six weeks from having an agreement. And there's two people that control that agreement. And it's generally not us. Yes. So I as agree. soon as they can reach an agreement, so they have the key to how long this takes and how much this costs. It's when, you know, sometimes they want to fight over things that they shouldn't. And that's where we need to come in and try to yes. talk them off the ledge. But sometimes, you know, like a relocation case, it's tough. That's yeah. a tough case to settle unless the other parent wants to follow the relocating parent you know, how do you settle that and sometimes you know that's it's that's going to be tried and it's a lot of it's emotional stuff too which as I, we were talking before the we started recording that this sort of the human condition and we're all human beings at the end of the day right yeah. so we can't just turn those emotions off it's hard. But I know that you are a busy lady and you don't have all day, although I would love to talk to you all day. <laughs> well, thank like, you. This I, is exciting. What a, You're doing such a great job. So congratulations you. to you and your vision and this part of your career and journey. You're doing great. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thanks for sitting for an interview. And I do like to end my show with five quick questions. No, brother. What? <laughs> it's good. It's good. What's the very best business advice you ever got? Um, best business advice. Um, sometimes your best client is the client you say no to. Well, yeah. yeah. I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. What's the best life advice you ever got? Life advice? Um, I'd rather have four quarters than a hundred pennies. <laughs> right? Wow. You'd that's... rather have four really good people in your life, you know, your village, than a hundred fake ones. Yeah. I think that's so true. Yeah. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Mm, don't sweat the small stuff and everything small. Well, mostly everything. You Unless know it deals You're with so your right kids. Yeah, I mean, really, that when really you think true. about I think Oprah, in one of yes. her articles, said it's like the, the rule of five. You know, ask yourself when something's happen happening to you, is this going to matter in five minutes, five months, five years? And mostly everything doesn't matter. It's true. And I think as I've gotten older, I, I don't sweat things as much as I used to. I'm like, I just don't have the energy. You or the time, right? Yeah. You don't have the time. Okay. So what person do you most admire and why? I would say my parents. You know, I can't pick one. So, But I would say, you know, my parents. You know, they, um, when I think I'm one of five, like I said, my dad was a cop. My mom was a school bus driver. We grew up very poor. You know, really? pizza on a Friday night was a luxury. I had to shop at Kmart growing up. It was terrible. I mean, so I, I relate to you when you said you didn't have a lot of money. So, but I think back and I, you know, I'm a mom of three. My, my parents have five kids. I, they put us all through college. 
I wow. don't, I have no idea how. I don't even want to ask. I don't know. But, you know, and then my mom drilled into us at a very early age the power of education and self-sufficiency and independence and never having to rely on anybody or anything. And so, um, you know, I'm very thankful for her for that. And my dad just talking law with me since I'm a kid. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the two that I, I admire the most. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that you didn't grow up with money. Yeah. I didn't really think about it, but. I remember walking into school with, like, Kmart Action Track sneakers. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Yeah. Oh, man, I know. But, yeah, you know, but they did the best they can, yeah. you know. I They sent me to a camp, but and here I'm thinking I'm going to a fancy camp. It was Camp Hope in West Milford or something, and it was like a camp for poor kids. <laughs> I, think those, I think those experiences make you, as an adult, make you more compassionate to other people that aren't in the same category mm-hmm. as you. You know, I'm very... I'm very attuned to other people that don't have a head start in life and are starting maybe sort of behind the eight ball and how hard that is because I did it. So uh, I don't know. I think it helps me appreciate other people now as an adult that, that really don't have the same blessings that I have. I think what it translates to is I know I'm not the smartest, you know, I'm not the brightest. I'm, I know I'm not the best educated, but you're not going to outwork me, right? I'm going to I'm going to work as hard as I can. Yeah. And so I think that's what you and I learned from Definitely. our childhood is, you know, we got to work. You just got to outwork them. I you yeah, work I think hard. I've learned that you can really be anything you want. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you start. I totally there, agree. There's some, you know, little postcard going around Facebook that says um somewhere there's someone with less talent than you killing it because they're working harder. I think that's what it's about, just putting the time in, working hard, surrounding yourself with really good people that have that same work ethic. Um, and, you know, I think you can have it all. You can. I think you can, you know, and I think you can have it all at the same time. You know, something may have to give somewhere, but, you know, I don't buy into that, you know, women can't have it all. Or Final question, Yeah, I know you have to go. Okay. What would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own law firm, but they're too afraid? Don't be afraid. Uh, change is hard, but take that fear and um, convert it to adrenaline and uh, vision. Um, line up some banks and lines of credit. Uh, bet on yourself. You know, my husband said that to me. Many sleepless nights, um, you know, trying to get this operation underway. And he said, um, I've never seen a surer bet than a bet on you. And even, I mean, I didn't believe that all the time. And there's days I don't believe that. But um, if that's, you know, my advice would bet on yourself. We all have doubts. You just have to push through them. You just do. Just ignore it. And try not to pay attention when you have to fund payroll twice a month. (laughs) I can yeah. relate to that. Anyway, thank you. No, this thank was really you. enlightening. Oh, and good. And I hope so. Maybe we can do it again.